As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I say! And time, and time again. Crank up the music, charge a glass. This nation is going to dance all night. Emergency goalkeepers, towering right backs, absolutely baffling left backs, the most natural centre half partnership ever conceived, the enduring obsession with strikers moving back into midfield and spraying the ball about, and obviously, Paul Warhurst. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this. It's football cliches and the ultimate makeshift 11. Right now, you can subscribe to The Athletic for just £3.49 a month. That's 30% off the full price of a subscription. You'll enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. So go to theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod to take advantage of this special discount. That's theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 89 of the Football Clichés podcast. I'm Adam Hurry and with me is 0.66% of Kingstonians' average attendance. First of all, Michael Cox. Hi Michael. Hi Adam. On this theme of today, makeshift players in makeshift formations, does it annoy you when a team plays a non-striker up front out of necessity slash stupidity and then he's immediately labelled a false nine? Yeah, a little bit because I think... um... Especially if it's a defender, mm. because they're not at all false nine. <laughs> no. In a way, they're more pure nine than most actual strikers <laughs> these days. Yes. So yes, you're correct. That that is a pet peeve. Oh, I, I, actually, it's interesting. I like how it's, how it comes full circle. Yeah, that's very interesting. The falser you get, the more real you become. Interesting indeed. Alongside you, James Moore, reeling from the news of Harry Kane staying at Spurs. Are you reeling? I suppose you're not, actually, are you? Uh, I'm just not surprised, really, to be mm. completely honest. Regular listeners to the view from the loan all night, I've been saying all summer that you won't go. So, no, I'm not reeling at all. And just to go back to your point there, Michael, 
If it's a centre-back, they're probably not a false nine, but if it's a full-back playing up front, then I would argue possibly they could be. Has that ever happened? <laughs> More of that later. <laughs> Has that? Oh, okay, good, good. Yes, save that, save that indeed. So, James, you're clear on today's task. I mean, I had a lot of Twitter respondents coming, coming to me with, well, you could have a team of 11 player Xs, not interested in utility men, not interested in utility men. And I'm also not massively interested, if, if we can, with emergency sort of positions. I want, I want makeshift players, players who, who did a job consistently in a position when they had to. That's, that's the vibe we're going for. Did, did a job is definitely the key phrase for this. Yep. I am slightly concerned that I do have a few who, who, are definitely, uh, who definitely did a job in circumstances that could only be described as an emergency. Okay, well, that's fine. We can pepper it with those. I've no problem with that. But yes, here we go. Square pegs in round holes. This is the ultimate makeshift 11. So we start, of course, with the goalkeeper. And uh, Coxie, by definition, this kind of has to be an emergency situation in almost all cases. But there must be the odd career-long emergency option as well. So, I mean, there's some obvious short-lived stand-ins. Your Niall Quinn, your Harry Kane, your Carl Walkers. Very much a novelty, though. Are there any more kind of enduring options at our disposal? No, mine was Niall Quinn on the basis that he very much agreed for World Cup 1990, I think, that if it was needed, he would be the third choice goalkeeper, which I like. And I think, you know, it, it was only a, a fleeting appearance, quite famously in that game against Derby. But I think the fact that he'd scored the opener of the game, then went in goal and saved a penalty, and that result actually relegated Derby, <laughs> I think really elevated to something. And I actually went back and watched the footage of this. And uh, this is quite interesting, I think, because it's the golden era of outfielders having to go in goal because, one, they've just brought in the kind of double jeopardy thing where goalkeepers starting to get sent off, but you only have two men on the bench. So there's a great scene in this where Tony Coton gets sent off and is reluctant to leave the pitch. And Martin Tyler comes up with <laughs> the line you just wouldn't hear these days, which is, the jersey's got to come off, but who will put it on? Which, which I really like. And it's, uh, it, of course, was Noah Quinn. So he was my option in goal. He's reluctant to go. The jersey's got to come off. But who will put it on for Manchester City? Alan Harper has it in his hands at the moment, and it's Quinn. That's a charming piece of commentary. I like that. Just, just to tick the boxes on that one, aside from scoring the goal and saving a penalty, I noticed he also had his shirt tucked in. Which I appreciate is a bit uh, football cliches, cliches, mm. but it, that is quite rare for someone of his frame as well. He really does look like someone who would have an untucked shirt in goal. Yeah, I think that that's that's the law, isn't it? If you're an outfielder, um, I think but, so. Yeah, but no, yeah, maybe he was of the stature. But let let's not forget he was prepared for the eventuality. This is this wasn't just you know that's true. You know, it, it wasn't just sprung on him. So one option we've forgotten here. Whilst I am charmed by Coxie's suggestion of what was ostensibly an emergency option, but one was already prepared for the eventuality in Niall Quinn and very capable at the job too, which is a very, very important factor. It wasn't just a random thrown in because they used to do it occasionally in training. I offer you Phil Jagielka, who notably performed the role in keeping Arsenal at bay in what I believe was a Premier League encounter. 34 minutes, when Arsenal were a proper football team as well. Exactly. Knew he was in line to do the job. Neil Warnock, of course, famously didn't have a goalkeeper on the bench for this particular eventuality. 
And uh, this particular quote, I think, from Warnock maybe seals the deal. Um, he's a very competent keeper, but he's the sort of bloke who'd be world-class at tiddlywinks, said Warnock. <laughs> uh, uh, side issue, Coxie, why is it always tiddlywinks that is, that is cited as the kind of, he'll do anything, he'll be competitive at anything? What is it about tiddlywinks? Have you ever played? Uh, I have, back when I was a kid in the 1990s, and I think that it is a quite a 1990s thing, I think. And so it fits with Warnock, doesn't it? I mean, I've got, this is maybe slightly too tactical here but I've got a theory that if you put an outfielder in goal the opposition have stupid shots because they think they they act like this guy can't use his hands do you know what I mean they just float the ball hopefully towards the top corner and actually it turns out that your average footballer can save a shot they're they're not top class but they can save shots this is definitely true this is definitely true because if you think of if, if we could speculate James on the average minute that um, a goalkeeper is sent off and all the substitutes are used and all the eventualities line up. I would say it's roughly 86th minute. Yeah, it's got to be late. If I've used all the, in this day and age, if I've used all three subs, it's, yeah, it's got to be late in the game. Exactly. Last 15 minutes easily. So it doesn't take long for the paranoia to kick in in the opposition fans that they haven't tested this goalkeeper. And it feels like if you haven't done it after a minute, then they fucked it. They fucked it. You fucked the opportunity to, to test yeah. this new goalkeeper. Yeah. Absolutely. So, um, yeah, I completely agree. And I, I would like to throw one final flourish into the mix for Jagielka, James, is that all those things combined, plus the fact that he was perennially top of the those absurd average speed of sprint <laughs> articles. And that's good for a sweeper keeper. You want you want your keeper to be quick off the mark. So yeah, that he is has true. all the ingredients. The thing I remember about Jagielka is that every two years, I think probably roughly from about 2006 to probably about 2016, he'd be touted as England's third choice keeper, even though that's not allowed in the rules of, of uh, UEFA or FIFA squads for these tournaments. You have to have three proper goalkeepers. But every two years, Niall Quinn, ro- <laughs> Quinn rule, shouldn't it? Every two years, someone would suggest it in a column in a newspaper or whatever. I just had Jagielka as a third keeper and not bother with Jack Butland or whoever. Similar, similar level of idiocy to people who think that Manuel Almunia should have played for England when he wasn't actually allowed. And this thing st- keeps happening. They're not allowed to play for England. I'm saying it on this podcast and I'm 99% sure I'm right. They can't play for England. There's a special rule and they're not allowed. So, um, and also he just was never that good. That's, <laughs> that's one of us. I kind of got Arteta or, or someone like that. Do you know what I mean? Steve Malbronk. Almunia <laughs> was, was very obviously just... Really, really lucky to be at Arsenal, and fans constantly wanted him replaced. Imagine, so I never got that one. Imagine Almunia and Malbronk ending England's years of her in the mid two thousands. Absolutely not. Anyway, it's a slam dunk. It's Phil Jagielka in goal for our makeshift eleven. Now on to kind of more bread and butter matters. Now we've got the emergency situation out of the way. I want to talk about right backs, James. Our listeners suggest Adam Hunter says Dominic Calvert Lewin popped up at right wing back as dreamed up by Ronald Koeman. In hindsight, that feels absurd. Yeah, I remember someone mentioning that. Uh, I mm. think probably during the Euros. I can. Mm. I, I don't have no memory of that, but it sounds absolutely incredible. Mm. Yeah. Um, Stoke fan Jason says, Mame Biram Diouf, the poacher turned right wing back. He would throw his body at everything haphazardly. Our best right back at one point. One of those situations where you think, when he joined Man United, could he have ever envisaged that's how his career would have gone? <laughs> playing right back for Stoke. I mean, that is the last thing you expect of a, of a fullback at Stoke as well, with all due respect. I mean, someone like, a, 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 you know, a sensibly forward playing at right back does seem, yeah, it's, it's kind of incongruous, that really, isn't it? I would give an example, Michael, of what perhaps could be the embodiment of makeshift back four. Alex Cullen writes, Arsenal ended the opening game of the season against Leicester in 2017 with a back four of Bellerin at left back, Kolasinac and Monreal as their centre-halves, and Oxlade-Chamberlain at right-back, the definition <laughs> of makeshift IMO. 
He's always correct, I think. Yes, I think that's a very good shout. On this point, James, if we take individuals out of the equation, is it only back fours that can be considered makeshift? You can't have a makeshift midfield, can you? You can have, have a makeshift. makeshift you can have a makeshift. Line. Yeah, you can have a makeshift front line, can't you? I think if you have, if you end up, you know, you have two. You have a makeshift your, striker. Well, I think in the days of a front two, maybe not now, but in the days of a front two, I think you could end up with like a winger and a midfielder playing up front. Or I, I think does it have to be positional? I suppose it does. You can't have like an academy player playing up front and and call that a makeshift front line with a winger or whatever. One of these rare situations where I think I'm actually just being too pedantic for this podcast. Now you're actually entirely. I'm not sure it's that rare. Picked to be up honest. on something that simply is not the case. Fine, fine. I think it's just back back fours just lend themselves to stop gaps a bit more it just feels a bit more a bit more perilous doesn't it i think that's the that's the thing that you, you want your defense to be solid and when it's kind of been thrown together with all these weird bits and bobs that yeah you do worry so james do you have a right back for me because we're struggling uh, we are struggling I, I, i've written down james milner for about half of the positions in this team <laughs> you might have uh, to. he's probably slightly funnier at left back isn't he i feel, I feel like that was that was more amusing when he when he washed up at, at, at left back i don't think there's a better one than calvert lewin now he's like one of the best sort of archetypal number nines in the league. I just don't know how notable it was. Michael, help us out here. I'm afraid it's an emergency one and it only happened for two minutes, but it's topical. And um, I was I was there at the Euro 2020 final oh, yes. when Southgate brought on Rashford oh. <laughs> for the last two minutes. And I was, I was by the corner flag where he was defending. <laughs> and the absolute sea from around me as people realised that Rashford was going to have to play right back for all of two minutes, was just remarkable. I felt like turning around and saying, I mean, he's still a footballer and a very disciplined, hardworking footballer who can do a job. It's not like they brought on like Joe Root because they fancy him <laughs> under pressure. You know, he can defend for two minutes. So, um, yeah, it's a funny one right back. It's um, It feels like a position where there should be a lot of makeshift players because people are reluctant to play there, but I don't think there's a great shelf. The only option I've got to throw in is a last-ditch effort. And again, not so much emergencies as a kind of just overthinking things, but I offer you Robert Huth at right wing back for Chelsea against Monaco in the Champions League semi-final in 2004 and I'm sure he's done a job at, for Stoke at right back at some point James yeah it feels like was it Stoke who played kind of four I oh know it's West Brom who played four centre backs across the back four wasn't it so who would they have played who would they have had playing at right back in that time it would be the guy who I keep getting mixed up with the West Ham current West Ham centre back so McCauley would it be maybe? McCauley yeah Gareth yeah. McCauley I feel like who's yeah, we happy with who who's not going to bomb on is he yeah producer Dave is is making a last-ditch effort for us to include Steven Gerrard at right-back. Actually, that's not a bad shout. Okay, who's voting Steven Gerrard? James is. Who's voting Robert Huth? Me and Michael. Robert Huth it is. Okay, over to left-back. And suddenly the scenario changes, Michael, because, as you say, not many people want to play right-back, but not many people can play left-back. So that really does force the issue a lot more. Give me some names. Well, yeah, I think there's the Milner fact of being right-footed at left-back immediately just kind of looks wrong. You would never really get a left-back at right-back. But a a right-footer at left-back does happen. Um, My immediate thought was when Arsenal went on a record-breaking run of clean sheets on their way to the 2006 Champions League final, Matthew Flamini, who by that point hadn't really established him in his actual position as central midfield, did a very good job at... uh, a left back. But I think my favourite one here is the start of Brendan Rodgers' reign at Liverpool when he went back to his old club Swansea. He played Stuart Downey at left back. And I know what you're thinking. He was left footed. He famously wasn't getting many assists. So it's quite normal to put him at left back. Exactly what I was thinking. But the interesting thing here is he played Jose Enrique as his left midfielder. Oh. So he was playing a left back at left midfield and a left midfielder at left back. 
And that was just very early Liverpool Brendan Rodgers. Was, was that to counter the threat of uh, like Nathan Dyer or something? I mean, what was the thinking there? <laughs> I, I don't and know. Wayne Routledge. I, I mean, because it wasn't just like he was playing two left backs in tandem. It was that he was playing them the other way around. And I mean, I know they built up play a lot with Rangel. Maybe it was because of that. But I also think it was just, they've both been quite bad. And he was just almost trying to try things. It was just very weird to see them that way around. Yeah, this is a good shout. Good start. Um, James, I put it to you right now on the back of that. I've said it before and I will say it again. Right-footed left-backs, at least in the pre-Spinazzola sense, are one of the most unsatisfying sights in football. One of the, genuinely, one of the most jarring things. Like they, I think they can ruin a game of football. Yeah, it, do, it makes things incredibly lopsided and incredibly awkward and sort of, un, you know, ungainly. You know, the idea of like, you know, modern football now, we expect fullbacks to kind of, you know, like I said before, bomb on, go around the outside of the wide midfield player, get crosses into the box. And if you've got, I mean, without wanting to lean on Spurs too hard, you no, know, Lee Young Pyo, who was, a, who was a decent enough player, but a, a right a right fitting left back. It's but just at least, not, a, ah. at least a proper fullback. I mean, these emergency situations are also kind of necessarily extended necessarily having a real much. clunker out there as well. I don't think it necessarily makes much difference. I, I think I think once you're once you're right fit playing at left back, I just think it's so awkward. There, there was a great example of this um, a couple of years ago when Arsenal were away at West Ham, and uh, they're playing Ainsley Maitland Niles at left back, and just everyone knew the situation. So like West Ham's right midfielder just went inside, didn't bother Martin, went inside, played in central midfield. I remember Alexis Sanchez must have been when he was really kicking up a fuss and wanted to leave. Just very obviously refused to pass to Maitland <laughs> And on and on the few occasions that Maitland Niles got the ball, he kind of just he didn't bother taking, he just turned aside and just half heartedly laid it to his right for someone else. Just everyone knew that he wasn't gonna do anything. Well there you and go, because because a pass out to a fullback is one of the most one of the most kind of autopilot things you see in a game. As a fan, you're just waiting for it to happen. Yep, there's the option, you do it. So it must be really jarring for it not to happen in front of your eyes. And um I mean I guess it would extend to the opposition players, Coxie, because like they would say, okay, show him out, show him out onto his weaker foot. But with in some particular situations, maybe it's like a right-footed centre half who's been stuck out there, like in an unforgiving afternoon. How how emphatically would you show him onto? It would be properly kind of go on, absolutely go for it. I would I would literally run away from him and let him go into the space. Yeah, um, I mean, the only thing I can compare it to is when I when I used to play tennis and I was all right forehand, but terrible backhand. Okay. So I would literally stand right on the left of the pitch saying, look, you can put it right at the other side of the court. I'll run over there and hit it. Mm. I'm not using my backhand. Absolutely okay, not. that's nice. Yeah, like Wayne Bridge trying to use his right foot. Um, I have a final spanner to throw into the works here because I, I like the idea of Flamini, especially with the, you know, getting them so close to glory in his unfamiliar position. Alan Burns throws this spanner into the works. Henrik Pedersen at Bolton. Oh, yes. So we're talking about a bustling striker, right? Playing yeah. left back. And I don't think he was left footed. And he was, I think he wore number nine, didn't he? Yeah, maybe. So that gives it extra, extra kudos. And, and it wasn't a one-off. I'm convinced it's no, 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 no. So this was definitely a thing by yeah. Allardyce. Was this because yes. wasn't one of Bolton's tactics under Allardyce that kind of Norway '94 thing of like pinging diagonals onto was it Nolan or Davis who would peel out onto the smaller fullbacks? Yeah, was this like some... a plan to negate other teams doing that to them? <laughs> 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 Don't try and give us a taste of our own medicine. He wasn't even particularly big either. So, I mean, he was he was physically strong, but I wouldn't say he was towering. I'd but... say he was lumbering. That's mm, my my yeah. memory of him. It's Pedersen or Flamini. I got, I got Pedersen's a brilliant shout. It's just no, it's the distance good. that it's 
how far removed from his original position he was, which I really like, and the fact that it wasn't an emergency option. James, are you happy with Pedersen? Yeah, very much so. Yeah, I, mean, I think an attacking player playing a centre forward playing a fullback, I think, is uh, that's perfect. Yeah, it's a, it's a rare sight. I'm happy with Henrik Pedersen. Centre backs then a whole world of fun to be had here because there is a long and rich history of centre-halves dabbling in centre-forward play and the reverse, Michael. I think that does show how much the game has changed because in the 1990s, if you were a centre-back or centre-forward, your basic job was to head the ball. So if you were a good header, and we all know the players that we're talking about here, you could play at either end okay. But then in recent... It's happened a couple of times in recent years when obviously the game's changed, when centre-backs are expected to bring the ball out, centre-forwards are expected to drop deep. So you had, for example, away at Leeds about 10 years ago, Dimitar Berbatov had a brief stint at centre-back. Yeah, this is puzzling. It, I, I, it's never going to be in mad. my team because it's, it's too much of an absurd novelty, but I am fascinated by the concept of it. Yeah, and I mean, I remember after the game, a couple of teammates were, were saying, yeah, he goes there in training quite a lot. I can only think it was because... Probably didn't need to do that much running if you play centre-back in training. That's such a Berbatov version of Rooney always going in goal at the end of training, isn't it? I'm not going to throw myself around on the floor, but I will kind of go back and not move around that much. My theory here then, as a striker turned centre-half myself, I put it to you though, that strikers think that defending is really easy. I'm convinced that they think it's really easy. There is less of a science. There's less of an art to it. And so when they go back and do it in training, they think that they are basically Beckenbauer. They think that that they know exactly what's going to happen and when they get the ball they're better than the defenders at, at playing upfield so yeah I can kind of see how this happens I'm fascinated also James by the Leicester triumvirate in the mid to late 90s of Ian Marshall Steve Walsh and Matt Elliott having this is three players you've got, you've got some squad. who have moved from back to front and some that have moved from front to back I, know, there, I completely lost about which is which in, in yeah. their case Matt Elliott was definitely a centre back first who then played at centre forward right I yeah. think is that right I, I mean he scored two fine. goals in a cup final against Tran, a league cup final against Tranmere but I couldn't tell you whether or not he played up front or at centre half that day yeah. I'm guessing Steve probably Walsh, I really yeah. don't know which is which and Ian Marshall I'm pretty sure was a, was a yeah he was definitely forward. a full, early Premier League years he was yeah. definitely a forward at Oldham and then moved back later on imagine having three of those in your squad when I think about that Leicester side I think of them only having players like that all wing backs <laughs> and that the entire game was just giving it to Steve Guppy <laughs> Telling him to slow down so that the centre-backs could get themselves mm. into position mm. and crossing the ball. I mean, that is, was Martin O'Neill. Is it picking up the second ball by just volleying it into the top corner? Job done. We don't need any other players. Fantastic. Just, yeah, just a six-man team at all times. Don't think anybody ever noticed. Amidst this confusion, James, Gary Doherty is the most confusing of all. I know he's much cited in this situation and for, for mostly comical reasons, but I'm, I want to set that aside. Was he a defender or was he a striker? You know, it's funny you mentioned Gary Doherty. Adam, because uh, unsurprisingly, I have actually written quite an extensive note about him. So he, he actually, when he joined Spurs, he was touted as a striker slash centre back. Like well, they actually signed player. him as one. Yeah, it, well, that... like, when, you know, like on the kind of early version of the website in in two thousand, it's signing this guy from Luton Town who nobody had heard anything about, but he was being sold as someone who could play in the two positions. That is and so it, too Bob. That it's is really such too it's Bob incredibly behavior. weird. It's like an era at Spurs, you know, George Graham as a manager, yeah. like, picking up all these weird players from the football league, mm. um, with respect. 
in his first year, he probably played like a fairly even split between between centre back and the centre forward. He scored quite a few goals when he played up front. Then he broke his leg at the age of twenty one, and, and from that point, you know, lost a bit of mobility, a bit of speed, and, and he was just a centre back after that mostly. But yeah, bizarre to have that at the start of your to be a utility player at the start of your career rather than the end. It's quite mm. unusual. This is the first and last time I will cite a football manager game in this podcast. I promise. <laughs> good, but good. I, d- I do remember uh, the first year where you could actually see the two D pitch when you were managing playing against Spurs and they made a tactical switch from 4-4-2 to 5-4-1 that literally just involved Doherty walking back from centre forward <laughs> to become a fifth defender and I just wish I could have screenshotted it because I found that image. incredibly funny. That is lovely. That, that puts him so close to contention in, 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 a, in a position where we have an embarrassment of riches. We've had Ian Marshall, Steve Walsh, Matt Elliott, Gary Doherty, Dimitar Berbatov apparently. But... But I can't look past these two for my centre-half partnership, and you're going to have to do very hard to argue against it. First of all, Dion Dublin, James. Can I tell you something about Dion Dublin? It's going yes, to blow you you, genuinely going to blow your mind. This has nothing to do with the, with the subject. I'm going to blow hand. your mind after that. So okay. you, Imagine you're, if you, you think you're going to blow your mind with the thing I'm going to blow your mind with. It's like nuclear war. Go on. <laughs> um, so Dion Dublin used to share a house with a Hollywood actor. Genuinely, well, they live together. They live they together. When Dion it. Dublin, when Dion Dublin was like a young player at I think at Norwich, when he was like sort of seventeen, before he went to Cambridge, he was at Norwich like as an apprentice before he went to Cambridge. And were and they famous too? This person was not famous at that point, but is subsequently a massive Hollywood movie star. Sean Bean. <laughs> no, it's not Sean Bean. I don't know why I laughed at that. It's it's more ridiculous than that. I think Michael has to opt out here because I, I suspect I've told him before. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I don't think you're going to get it. Do you want me to tell you? I'm not going to get it. It's Jason Statham. Insane! I know, it's amazing, right? For, he was a diver at that time, I assume. He, correct. Right. Great knowledge. Yeah, I, know, I knew he was a diver. Yeah. Wow. Not, not Dion Dublin, of course, definitely not a No, diver. very much not. No, he's so no, not what, that sort of player at all. What type of diver? Like Tom Daly or deep sea diver? No, you know, Tom, Tom <laughs> you know, Daly. Important clarification. Yeah, very much a competitive diver. Well, what a household that would have been. So, Dion Dublin began as a centre-half in his early days at Norwich, Michael. Became a notable and capable, natural striker. And then, in his latter years, returned to centre-half, which I think he would have done anyway, even if he hadn't started as one. It's a very nice trajectory. I'm really happy with that. Yeah, I I think so. I I just don't don't think you can beat that. And he was... um, Again, I think he wore... He often wore number nine while he was at the back. And I just think that is... It does give a little bit more... Not giving up the shirt is is a touch of class. Okay, so you say I can't beat that, but I can match it. I can match it. And the extent to which I can match it genuinely will blow both of your minds. The name I'm obviously talking about is Chris Sutton. Now, Chris Sutton and Dion Dublin, here are their career paths abridged. Dion Dublin, Norwich, England, four caps, 1998, Villa, Celtic. Chris Sutton, Norwich, England, one cap, 1997, Celtic, Villa. Chris Sutton also moved from centre-back to centre-forward. They were both born in the East Midlands, both made big money moves to title-chasing Premier League signs in the early 90s, both shared the Premier League golden boot in 1997-98. Dublin joined Celtic in January 2006 to replace Chris Sutton, who had fallen out with Gordon Strachan midway through the season. And by the way, Celtic also had John Hartson on their books that season, which is even more <laughs> absurd. This is a very, this is like a deluxe Leicester going on here. I cannot think of a better reason to have two players at the heart of my defence and all of those things. What an incredible parallel. Both top broadcasters of the BBC yes. now as well. Yeah. Yeah, it is excellent. I, I very briefly touched on uh, on this in one of the chapters of, of my book, The Mixer, <laughs> The Parallels, but I didn't, I didn't explore it quite as thoroughly as you've done. But I mean, Sutton, even when Sutton made the move from Norwich to 
Blackburn, when I think he became the most uh, British record transfer fee, his Norwich manager, Mike Walker, was still saying that he should be a centre-back. And he said he only became he only became a centre-forward because, quote, his ego got in the way. <laughs> <laughs> it makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. It's exactly why people want to be strikers for the glory. Um, I've got this image in my head that James Chris Sutton turning down an England B cap just because he was so worried that Dion Dublin is just going to permanently take his place in the England team from then on, so it's not worth it. <laughs> It's just yeah. not worth it. Yeah, yeah, I can, Im- I can well imagine. So, I mean, with all due respect to Gary Doherty, who just felt a little bit too much like a banter option anyway, despite your extensive notes, it's Dion Dublin and Chris Sutton at the heart of my defence. So we've got a back four now in front of Phil Jagielka of Robert Huth, Henrik Pedersen, Dion Dublin and Chris Sutton. That is uncompromising, Michael. <laughs> yeah, I can think of certain managers who would very much like that as their, uh, their defence. <laughs> Going to be a threat at set pieces, aren't they? Yeah, hugely. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. If, Michael, if you're, if you're alluding to Tony Pulis. He kicks off our considerations for midfield. Not Tony Pulis himself, I should add, because The Last Blairite writes in and says, Tony Pulis played Victor Anichibi as a defensive midfielder in 2015. <laughs> um, which is a real saving grace for this midfield, which is looking a little bit threadbare, I have to say. But that, that's a slam dunk, isn't it, for us? That is, that is remarkable. And especially because I think Victor Anichibi... He was only good at one thing, but he was the best player I've ever seen at it, and that was backing into centre backs. <laughs> he could he could gain about fifteen yards every time he got the ball, and I'm not quite sure how that is transferable to defensive midfield. Not Just... true. Not true. If if he was playing nowadays and he got a short goal kick, he'd be so good at protecting. <laughs> Because, you, you know, just, someone like Jorginho, you're never going to be sure they're going to keep hold of it. Victor and each of you would. Yeah, and he can knock it back to Henrik Pedersen to hack it up the pitch. <laughs> <laughs> this is great. This team, I can't wait to decide at the end of this where they would finish at the current Premier League table. But Victor and each of you, it looks like he's going to anchor our three-man midfield. But, James, I'm also interested, this is a slight offshoot of this prevailing idea that strikers simply move back into midfield in their later career if they want to, like Wayne Rooney. This kind of slightly lazy thinking that they're just entitled to move back because, well, it's easier there, isn't it? You can just spray the ball about. Spraying the ball about. It has to be the most, in theory, concept in football. Wayne Rooney playing in midfield is a thing that I think we're uh, spoken about for about 10 years. (laughs) And then we finally saw it with England in a major tournament in 2016 and he was absolute garbage. Mm. Yeah, he was he was awful, and it was one of the I, was, I think it's one of the biggest problems England had in that team. And I, I think Michael agreed to that. I suspect he's written that before. Mm, mm. Um, yeah, just the, you're right. The, the idea that just because he could kind of occasionally drop off and play a, a kind of eye pleasing pass, yeah, every now and then over the course of like the first ten years of his career, that doesn't necessarily mean that he's going to be able to dictate the tempo of a football match at the age I of 33, 34. 
I was completely won over by that. Even while he was, you know, stinking the place out for England in midfield, I still thought it still looks fine to me. It didn't look weird, Michael, is what I'm basically trying to say. It still looked fairly natural to see him playing there, even if he was rubbish. Yeah, I mean, by that point, he played probably at least half a season under Van Howe there. And the strange thing was that Van Howe often played him in central midfield while playing Angel Di Maria up front, which didn't seem to make any sense. But yeah, I mean, Rooney is... Um, yeah, he was a player who at least had the... The natural abilities in terms of the passing range for that. The, the player I've got, another who also played for Manchester United and Everton, is uh, Mark Hughes. Oh. I mean, I didn't really understand that because I thought of, I always thought of Mark Hughes as a penalty box striker, a finisher, famously very good at volleying. Didn't really think of him as kind of setting the tempo or being particularly creative. But towards the end of his career, particularly at Southampton, then Blackburn. He suddenly became, he he didn't even drop back gradually. He went from being like a number nine, really, to a proper number four, like a defensive midfielder. And just to give bonus points here, in my opinion, I don't know why this earns bonus points, but I think it does. He won the uh, Worthington Cup, as it was, against, against Tottenham in 2002 as a defensive midfielder, while also being manager of his country. Now, I don't know why that's important, but <laughs> that being, being an international manager and also a makeshift defensive midfielder just is perfect for this. So what I thought you were going to say, Michael, in truly in the vein of his podcast, is that he won the Alan Hardacre trophy in that match, which I believe is the Man of the Match award for the League Cup final, isn't it? It is, Well, yes. yeah, the sort of thing everyone should remember and don't know why, yeah. No, but, no it's a very good shout. I believe um, he did. Yeah. Um, you neglected to mention, Michael, that his midfield credentials are rubber-stamped even further by the fact he picked up and I can't remember the precise number, but I have written about it before, about 20-odd bookings in the space of two seasons in midfield, which is astonishing. Just, But you can see, you probably see how they all happened as well. It's not quite able to get there, but also not giving a shit about clumping someone. I am entranced by this option, but I think James may have some others. Yeah, can I give you a twofer from Tim Sherwood's glorious brief spell at Spurs? Uh, so in a Europa League game away to Benfica, he deployed Nasser Chadley as the, the uh, defensive midfield player, which is pretty odd. I mean, he's quite a big guy, Chadley, quite, but he's not, I don't think I necessarily say he was kind of physically imposing. But secondly, and I think you might like this a bit more, he played Kyle Walker as a number 10 at Chelsea which is an incredibly bold move. I don't get I, that. I, it's absolutely bizarre. I mean, I don't know if the idea was sort of, you know, pressing from the front, like defending from the front. Yeah. In, in the very literal sense. Makes sense. Maybe. And it actually kind of wasn't working too badly until he did this awful backwards header to Lloris that I think I think Eto picked up and scored from. But yeah, I, I mean, I, I was kind of expecting Pep Guardiola to eventually play Kai Walker as a number 10 and Tim Sherwood as he often does to come out and say oh, I actually did that first but so far it hasn't happened but we won't I see. quite like the idea by no means am I a bleeding edge tactical thinker but um, the idea of putting someone in that position purely for their ability to press and nothing else just because you know that he could close someone down really really quickly seems quite sensible to me so I'd call that the Shinji Okazaki role <laughs> <laughs> right yeah yeah furious furious work ethic some slightly surreal shouts here from our listeners tightwad bill i promised i'd read this out and i will he says watching george saville play left wing in a cup game away at borough made me want to swallow my eyeballs and shit them out in the tees it's <laughs> 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 actually the most that. stunning appraisal of a player's performance i've ever heard um but he's, he's not gonna go in my team <laughs> on that basis alone. Need one of you to corroborate this story from Harry. I may have imagined this, James, 
but did Phil Jones not line up at right mid for England against Brazil once to counter the threat of Neymar? <laughs> was that the kind of random away game we played? Yeah, the one in the Maracanã where um, did Oxlade Chamberlain score? And Rooney scored a belter as well. Yeah, because mm. he did play right back. He did sometimes play central midfield. He was I he's a versatile player, he, Jones, wasn't he? Let's yeah, Google this because I reckon he might have played right of a three. I can't imagine he'd be right of a four, unless that was unless it was just another sort of doubling up job. I think we may have the clincher here. I found the player ratings from um, <laughs> from that game. Phil Jones, midfield five, looked out of depth, perhaps understandably when deployed in midfield against the mobile and skillful Brazilians. Mobile and skillful Brazilians. Was this in the nineteen <laughs> seventies? Surely central defence will be his eventual England home. Ah. Oh, Tinged oh. with tragedy there as well. Oh, I like this. I like this a lot. Phil Jones is going in my team 100%. I mean, but he started in midfield though, didn't he, Michael? So, oh. I mean, I don't think it was right midfield. If this was right of a four, I think it's a great makeshift shell. But if this is just a central midfielder, I think that was considered very much a doable thing. The rest of the point. midfield was Michael Carrick, Frank Lampard, James Milner and Theo Walcott. So I'm I'm assuming he was deployed centrally in a five. Shame. Came so close there. So the only other options I've got for you are John O'Shea, who once made up this midfield for a Manchester United FA Cup tie against Arsenal. Raphael on the right, Fabio on the left and a midfield pair of Darren Gibson and John O'Shea. And Man United won that with a very good tactical performance from those two Brazilian wing- wingers. As they were, yeah. Is that the is that the William Gallas kicking Nanny up the arse game? No, this was I think it was two 0 or something. Right. It was probably three years after that. Okay, yeah. yeah, that would have been that would have been just too much of a combination of um, surreal situations. But I quite like the idea of John O'Shea here because a utility man as he mostly was, James, he still looks kind of awkward as a as one of the midfield two. It's definitely good to get John O'Shea in this team because I didn't mention him for goalkeepers because I thought it was too obvious, and he definitely played at left back a lot quite awkwardly as well so to chuck him in a midfield where he probably played even s i think is actually quite fitting for this team yeah in some ways he kind of embodies michael the general vibe of this team which is just players players doing their jobs dutifully but still looking quite doddery at the same time while doing it i mean that's that's what makeshift means to me he definitely he definitely always looked awkward i mean he he had a game in goal didn't he didn't he once deputising goal I think he's in that list he's the most uncomfortable score of a goal ever when he scored that chip at Highbury and just didn't know what to do yes, the only yes. the only caveat I'd say to this is people forget this but there was a period where Roy Keane was out injured about 2002 and he came in and O'Shea came into side for the first time and he was playing central midfield and people were really talking about him as someone who could dominate the Manchester United midfield for years to come <laughs> So, well, I mean, as soon as you hear those words, you know it's not going to happen. That's the problem. I mean, well, Phil Jones was true. destined to be Manchester United's <laughs> greatest ever player. That is true. Yeah. But I think there's a... O'Shea became kind of this almost slightly comedy jack-of-all-trades, whereas I think there was hope for him to be a real star at one point. I'm slightly underwhelmed by our midfield, I have to say, James. And currently, it's Victor and Ichibi, John O'Shea and Mark Hughes. But it, this is the problem with makeshiftness. It's it doesn't really lend itself to midfield. Is it too functional? Well, can you have... Actually, this is a good point. James, can you have a makeshift playmaker? I don't think it's possible. You wouldn't... If they were good enough to do it, then they yeah, would be doing, doing it, it anyway. All the time. This yeah. is tricky. I mean, it is like when you're a kid. You only want to really play in the attacking position, don't you? If you're good enough to play as a number 10, mm. you're going to end up playing there somewhere, aren't you? Do we not have any exotic options, guys? Not sure about exotic. I mean, I've got one here that, for a start, it never happened, so it's definitely not going in your team, but it was discussed for about five years, and that was Leighton Baines playing central midfield. Oh, I don't remember which- this at all. 
under various managers, particularly Martinez, was discussed. And I particularly like the fact that Roberto Martinez and Leighton Beans flew over to Bavaria to watch Philip Lahm playing in <laughs> That's <laughs> too much. I, I can just imagine Martinez and Baines having a really nice weekend in <laughs> Munich. They, they just both seem like quite sophisticated people. So it never happened, but I, I googled this and found um, articles, yeah, five years apart discussing uh, either Martinez or Silver's or, or Ronald Koeman's uh, thoughts about potentially doing that. But I think he only ever did it in a reserve game. Okay, my final attempt to spice up this midfield in any way I can. James, Alan Smith, the Leeds one. Yeah. Who then went to Manchester United and became a kind of tigerish midfielder? Yeah. Uh, was that was this another one that was down to injury or was that after, was that once was that once he had gone into midfield? No, I think it was purely down to the fact he was just a bit of an arsehole. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He was just regarded as getting stuck in. Yeah, I mean, loved it. I, I I completely agree with this because the thing you got to remember is when Smith came through, he was seen as a future England number nine and indeed did play up front for England. But it was the fact that when he went to midfield, he completely lost any ability to score goals. So he played eighty four games for Newcastle and didn't score. He scored. He played eighty seven games for Notts County and didn't score. He just completely vanished off the face of the earth in terms of being a penalty box threat. Um, which is a remarkable come down from a player who I think I remember him scoring four goals for Leeds in the UEFA Cup game one. Michael just reminded me of something but by mentioning Alan Smith playing for Newcastle. I'm going to put this to you now, Michael. Did Michael Owen play in midfield for Newcastle for a bit? He, he played as number 10 behind Viduka and Martins, I think. Oh, that's and, so and was actually quite good there. This is a good point because I had a very similar uh, misremembering. I thought he played in midfield for Stoke at the very, very end of his career and I googled it and whilst that never actually happened, there was lots of talk about him potentially doing it in the future which got me thinking about strikers just you know being presumed to be able to go back in midfield Michael I'd say that Michael Owen is probably the least likely striker I can think of to go back into midfield and start spraying it about if you take out these centre-backs yeah he definitely wasn't a sprayer about her I think that's fair to say <laughs> I, I mean he's up for spraying at all I, I remember him once playing there for um, Man United I think away at Southampton FA Cup game and he was actually quite good there can't, he played behind two so they're playing a diamond it. Just can't picture so it. He had more of a footballing brain than I'd previously considered, I must say. But I pre- I agree that, I mean, you don't even think of him as playing in front of the centre-backs. You just think of him as completely running in behind. So it's very Im- strange to see him there. just got images of running him running onto horizontal through balls from left to right just for 90 <laughs> minutes. No, I, just, I can't picture that at all um, to the extent which I absolutely cannot countenance in my team. So our midfield three, after all this dillying and dallying, is Victor Anichibi anchoring it just behind Alan Smith and Mark Hughes. What a goal threat! in theory, from midfield, despite the fact they didn't actually score from midfield. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard it right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer, if you ask me. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This episode is supported by FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League Two after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the team's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher league. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenge and rise again into League One? FX is welcome to Wrexham. All new Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. 
look at our strike force. Behold. James, where do we start? I mean, I'm assu- are we going to talk about David James or is that too obvious? No, we are going to talk about David James because it was premeditated. Yeah. And employed in emergency circumstances. Yeah, it's like the it was... inverted Jagielka, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it is. So, yeah, this brings things nicely full circle. So, yeah, I'm pretty happy with that. I mean, I don't think we need to talk at length about how ridiculous it was otherwise because we will we really will become football's 50 shocking moments. <laughs> uh, so there's nothing new to say. It is it's very much like Ali Dyer. There is the exact amount to say about David James playing up front as there is to say about Ali Dyer playing for Southampton that one game. The exact amount. Well, well the good thing is that at least with David James there is footage about it. <laughs> Ali I'm not Was that game even on TV? I don't yeah. think it was, was it? No, it, it was so, a so, final day free for all, wasn't it? So none of us actually saw it and mm. yet we all have great opinions about it. Yeah, exactly. Well, I mean the, the highlights do it justice enough. So yeah, it does feel too easy, James, but I but we have three strikers. It's a so good focal point for the attack, isn't it? Yeah, we've got focal points coming out of our ears here because um, <laughs> uh, David James is ticked off. Um, Michael, I'll give you a couple of listener suggestions first just to get those out of the way. Superintendent Dred Hastings says Danny Butterfield playing up front when Palace had no players due to an administration-related fire sale and scoring a perfect hat-trick has to put him in there. I like the perfect hat-trick aspect. This is my false nine, by the way, from earlier on. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, it's it's the ultimate. I mean, especially because at the, at the time, Palace were like supposedly on the verge of going out of existence. They would just, they'd run out of players. And they put up front a player who had, I mean, his goal scoring record until that was seven in 252 games. Put him up front and he scores a perfect hat-trick in, hat-trick in six minutes. Which was just remarkable. Um, I looked up, <laughs> I looked up quotes for this uh, for researching this uh, this player in terms of why it happened. And he said he did the old oh I just went up there in training. But he very specifically said he went up there in training quote in a jovial way, <laughs> <laughs> skipping up fields. His third, thought, his third goal in this hat trick, by the way, is a slight like it's like ball over the top, slightly awkward bounce, and he hits it on the bounce. Really good finish. What I thought Michael was going to say was that he said oh, the manager said go out there and make a nuisance of yourself <laughs> yeah. <laughs> three times. Yeah. Um, I mean, he ticks so many boxes except for the bet for being utterly unremarkable. Otherwise, I'm, I'm, I feel rather elitist about this, but I'm tend to put him on, on the bench. But let's let's consider other options because. David James was James's first shout, but there is an even more obvious shout for makeshift striker in the modern-ish era, surely. Who's that? Paul Warhurst. Ah, of course, yes. Now, this is a well-trodden and well-documented story. 12 goals in as many games for Sheffield Wednesday after being drafted in up front. But what I didn't know, or at least had forgotten until now, Michael, was that he was called up by England at the end of that run, as a striker by Graham Taylor. Admittedly, only at the expense of David Hurst and Brian Dean. But I still find that quite amazing. I feel like that would never, it's never, ever going to happen again. Yeah, and I mean, you know, Hurst was famously nearly on his way to Manchester United. Brian Dean was a very prolific uh, striker in the first couple of years of the Premier League. So, I mean, they were they were proper players. They were the kind of Calvert-Lewins, I guess, of, of their day. So, uh, yeah, I mean, that's pretty impressive, I would say. It's going to be hard to shake him out of this lineup, James. Yeah. Does it get more makeshifty than Paul Warhurst is basically what I'm asking you? I don't know. Makeshift is his middle name. Is Warhurst, yeah, exactly. He played in every position and he he was like a sort of... Tra- he, being a utility man was a trademark, so it almost feels like he's too much of a utility man for this team, if you know what I mean. I wonder whether, like, so Stephen Corker was the one I thought you were about to mention. Oh, yes. Quite... It, who, because he was playing for a, a big club, having kind of just come into the team under Jurgen Klopp, 
Was he signed specifically by Klopp or was he already there? But either way, it was Klopp who, who played him and I think it was against Norwich and chucked him on up front. And I think they used him in a, in a second game up front as well. Three times, in fact. Was that? I mean, um, what percentage of his appearances for Liverpool was that? I believe that's 100% of his appearances <laughs> for Liverpool. Kulka made his debut against Arsenal when he replaced Adam Lallana as an auxiliary strike in the 87th minute. For the next two league matches against Manchester United and away against Norwich, he entered the match as a striker in the 90th minute and contributed to a 95th minute winner by Lalana in the latter. That's three appearances. That's not emergency. That's premeditated. That is Stephen Corker. So, but I, I want to go back to Steve Walsh and Matt Elliott. Are we doing them an injustice here? Do they not need to squeeze into this, Michael? Maybe. maybe uh, I mean, Elliott, I always think of as a very good temporary centre-forward. I mean, can I can I chuck another name at you? And uh, I'm sorry, but... There is a, a Kingstonian link here because in, in 2009, Kingstonian signed a new, very highly tipped striker, a former Premier League winning player with Blackburn in 94-95. But it wasn't the Athletics Alan Shearer. It wasn't Sarcasm's Chris Sutton. It wasn't Sexism's Mike Newell. It was, in fact, it was in fact Ian Pearce. Oh, I wish you'd let me guess. And, uh, and the, the thing about this was... Pierce had generally, uh, genuinely played up front for West Ham in the Premier League. And I, I googled a particular match report. Blackburn 2, West Ham... To, he was at West Ham at this point. Blackburn 2, West Ham 2, from the 28th of December 2002. And West Ham just... Uh, this was uh, Glenn Roder, Just played him up front as a lone striker. And the amazing thing was that Jermaine Defoe was left on the bench. <laughs> Granted, it's a young Jermaine <laughs> Defoe who came off the bench to score an equaliser. This is very but, John Macken and David but, James, isn't it? <laughs> absolutely. But, but Ian Pearce was just the lone forward in a 4-5-1 formation. And he was just so obviously, I mean, a Premier League winning centre-back. Heartwarming story. I'm not having it. I'm not having Danny Butterfield for all, the, for all his credentials. He's just not famous enough. And Matt Elliott, I'm not having as a makeshift. I think he's just a very capable striker. He went beyond makeshift. So I'm happy with my front three of David James, Paul Makeshift Warhurst and Stephen Calker. Before I run through our lineup, James, we need a caretaker manager. We need a makeshift <laughs> manager for this. Who's the makeshiftest Premier League manager there ever was? Is it, is it Tony Parks, the guy who, beca- who became Blackburn's caretaker manager about 15 times over 15 the course times, of about 10 yeah. years? Yeah, very much so. Uh, he's got to be the ultimate, hasn't he? Yeah. But, I mean, again, he was always on alert to do it. So I, so I, I do wonder. Actually, that's that exactly what, that, the logic yeah. we've been employing the whole time. Tony Parks, potentially. Michael, do you have any names for us? No, I mean, Parks is the obvious one. I think he had five stints as caretaker. My, my only other shout would be, I think, the least willing manager in Premier League history. And that was uh, Terry Connor at Wolves. Who, I mean, Wolves, Wolves sacked Mick, uh, Mick McCarthy, spent two or three weeks looking for a replacement, then just got his assistant in. And he just clearly didn't want the job. He, he won zero from 13. And uh, I do remember watching Premier League years, like just after that season had ended, with a friend who had been um, basically travelling for six months. And they showed Terry Connor on the screen. And he just looked at me and said, who on earth is that? Which I think sums up what you want from a makeshift manager. Oh, that's harsh. The only name I had um, was Attilio Lombardo. Yeah, correct. Just because he feels, he just feels like. I mean, Tony Parks knew how to manage. Clearly, Connor, you know, he was he was a he was a jumped up number two, so that's fine. Lombardo just seems like the leftist field shout to become a Premier League manager of all time. So I feel like the the logic should be reversed for our manager. It should be an absurd option out of nowhere. Yeah, I do like that. 
I don't know why this has any relevance, but because he was a winger as well. I just don't think of a winger as being a yeah yeah centre back, centre and fielder. Fine, you can't be a winger and be a a player manager or even a manager as well, mm. as far as I'm concerned. I, I I would go as far to say <laughs> poor Johan Cruyff. <laughs> yeah, there, there should be a minimum height to be a manager as well. <laughs> Are there any good short, properly short managers? I don't think so. I don't think because they're either you either don't take them seriously or they're just like silly little hotheads, aren't they? They get too worked mm, up, mm. and and there'll be no good in a kind of touchline confrontation either. So I think it's like five ten upwards should be the uh, the, the LMA standard height limit. Um, I'm gonna I'm, I'm just gonna I'm just gonna pull rank again because it's Attilio Lombardo who's gonna r- preside over this team. So let's run through it one more time. Phil Jagielka in goal, a back four of Robert Huth, Henrik Pedersen, Dion Dublin and Chris Sutton, the inseparable Dublin and Sutton. A midfield three of Victor Inichibi, Alan Smith and Mark Hughes. And up front, Paul Warhurst, Stephen Culker and David James. So, Michael, you're putting, you're putting this team out on a, on a Saturday afternoon in 2021. How are they faring? Well, I've just done a podcast with uh, our resident day journalist, Tom Warville, mm. and we've discussed the importance of set pieces <laughs> yeah. and whether, because everyone's getting in a set piece team, they'll just start playing for set pieces. I don't think they will, but I think if this was a Premier League team, they would be... I mean, we'd want Tony Pulis in, wouldn't we? Oh, yeah. Really? Yeah. My, yeah worry, get... my worry, if this is a massively physically imposing team, yeah. And as I said before, they'd be a threat from set pieces. Who is going to take the set pieces, though? We've got a lot of... Phil Jack, lot... yeah. <laughs> yeah, he'd probably be right. Get him up to take them. Uh, I, I generally don't know who our set piece specialist is. Alan Smith, I guess, is the probably the, the most creative, cultured player out there. But um, probably not worth dwelling too much on. Delighted we did this. Some, some may have thought, as we embarked on this podcast, that it was a, a little bit of a tedious theme. But it's not. I'm fascinated by players being employed outside of their, uh, their comfort zones. Can I have one last shout as a substitute? I'm sure you'll be familiar with this tale, but when Arsenal won the league in 2004 with four games remaining, Martin Keown needed four games to get him to the required 10 for a Premier League medal. And so he was brought on as a substitute. But of course, Wenger didn't want to disturb the back four. So he just brought him on four times as right midfielder, Martin Keown. And I just thought, you know what, Martin Keown, I think he's probably quite a proud man, Mm. you know, a, a real defender's defender. And the, the sight of him half-heartedly running up and down the right flank, Tigerish. I felt a little bit sad. Probably It was probably around about the same time that he missed a penalty in his own testimonial. Um, <laughs> despite the fact that, despite the fact, obviously, they, they you know, presented it with a gift-wrapped opportunity to, to have the penalty. The goalkeeper did everything he could to let it in, and he still missed. So that's that's Keown in a nutshell for me. Did he not save the rebound? I'm sure it was Rob Green. I'm, I'm sure he saved the rebound yeah, as Arsenal well. Arsenal versus England for some bizarre, like a proper good England team, not even like a veteran side. Yeah, and uh, yeah, Rob Green, yeah, foiled him from the spot, which feels quite mean, but there it is. Um, fantastic makeshift work from you both. Thanks for joining me and, and for all your research and your names. Um, we've cobbled together the most unprepared looking side in football history. And for that... We should be proud. Cheers, Michael. My pleasure. Thank you. And cheers to you, James. Once again. Thanks, everyone. See you next time. The Athletic.